This is Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine, and I'm John Wiener. Now it's time to talk about mutual aid and racial justice and about making masks during the pandemic. For that, we turn to Christina Wong. She's a performance artist, comedian, and writer. She's performed across America, in the UK, Hong Kong, and Africa. She's been a guest on late-night shows on NBC, FX, and Comedy Central. Her commentaries have appeared on Marketplace, PBS, Vice, in Jezebel, in Playgirl magazine, the Huffington Post, and CNN. She's also an elected official in Los Angeles, a representative on a neighborhood council. But her greatest work is the Anti-Sewing Squad. And that's the subject of the new book she's edited. It's called The Anti-Sewing Squad Guide to Mask-Making, Radical Care, and Racial Justice. It's co-edited by Mei Lin K. Hong, Chrissy Lee Lau, and Priti Sharma. Christina recently finished doing an off-Broadway show. It's called Christina Wong Sweatshop Overlord. It ran at the New York Theater Workshop in November. Now she's back home in L.A. Christina Wong, welcome to the program. Thank you, John. We've never interviewed a sweatshop overlord before. How did you get to be one? Oh, this story. Yeah, I I didn't know that I had that destiny in me. Basically, March 20, 2020, uh, I was sitting at home when I was supposed to be getting ready for a tour that had been canceled. Uh, I was deemed non-essential, as most artists were. And I sew my set and prop pieces. I ended up, you know, just kind of down and out like, man, I'm <laughs> I'm unessential. And I was like, wait, I, I can sew masks. And no one knew where to get masks. It was a completely foreign, weird thing to wear something over your face. We forget this, how quickly our realities have shifted. Um, I actually wasn't wearing a mask because uh, I, I didn't want to make myself further target as an Asian woman in in the streets of America, like I was, everyone was already sort of angry at all things Asian for bringing, for quote unquote, bringing the virus here. That's not, that's not necessarily who's at fault, right? For this. And I sewed a mask on my Hello Kitty sewing machine, made a naive offer. Uh, if you need a mask, I'll make you one. Um, was inundated overnight, not realizing everyone needed a mask. And and I uh, got some very scary messages from nurses, from frontline workers, from people with elders. Like, And it felt like playing God every day because it was not like I had infinite amounts of time or that sewing is a very fast thing for me. Uh, but I was like, I need to get some help and recruit some people to, to help sew. Four days later, I created a casual, what was supposed to be a casual Facebook group called the Anti-Sewing Squad on and it, you know, it was a Facebook group, basically. And it, I, the first volunteers were mostly Asian women. And I, the, for me, the great irony is a lot of our mothers and grandmothers did garment work as a rite of passage to America. And suddenly we're, we're doing that work again for free. Many of us are college educated. It's not that we're above it, but it was like we never thought that we'd have to return to this work for any sort of survival in this way. And, and getting materials for... Um, <laughs> for these masks was nearly impossible when everything had shut down and we weren't prepared for a home sewing movement as a, as a country. But I looked around at all these sort of Asian aunties I was commanding around and I went, oh my God, I'm running a modern day Asian pandemic sweatshop. You use the term sweatshop, not just as a joke. Yeah, no, for me, it's very political to use it. And I have actually done projects uh, in support of labor, laborers who work in the garment industry. And so I am aware of like 
their situation is very dire, very serious, and their demands for living wages, I don't want to cheapen that by, by, by tossing around the term sweatshop, but it felt very clear in the 17 months that we were sewing masks, 17 months, <laughs> that there was a complete systemic failure in this country to provide the most vulnerable of Americans this basic form of protection, or even to advocate that it was useful. We saw that some governors lifted mask mandates. We saw the former former president yeah, <laughs> say that he wasn't going to wear a mask. It's a choice, right? And, and this sort of set this precedent that, that masks maybe didn't work, or maybe were uh, about impending on your freedom. And, and for us, we felt like our work was being undermined. And it wasn't, I did not go into this thinking this, I thought this was the least political thing I'd ever done in my life to, to make masks for my fellow Americans. And of course, like everything I end up doing, it ends up becoming this, <laughs> I end up stepping into this complete culture war by accident. But for me, using the term sweatshop was really about pointing to how difficult this work was on our bodies, how unpaid it was, how, how stressful this was, and not to romanticize it by saying, oh, we're volunteers and we're, we're do-gooders. We just have this time to help you. Because when you look at who these aunties were in our group, which was by the end, about 800 aunties had come through our group across 33 states. 800 in 33 states. And may I just ask, how many masks did you make? 350,000. 350,000 masks. They were all given to vulnerable. Well, originally it was for frontline workers and medical workers. And then it became very clear, wait, there are tons of, if, if these are the people who can find us easily through social media, who are the people who cannot? Because they probably need this even more than people who get salaries working at a hospital, Right. And so that's where we began to pivot is sending to farm workers, indigenous communities, migrants at the border, uh, unhoused communities, sex workers, incarcerated communities, right? So this is this is where this all shifted. And, and for me, it was like, I, I, I just found myself just so confounded at how ridiculous some of these requests were getting, not ridiculous, like the people who needed them were terrible people, but just how broken the systems. At one point, a social worker with a with a government email address was asking us for masks. And I was just like, ah. and she actually sent her son in LA to help pick up stuff. Mm-hmm. She looked like she lived like 350 miles away, you know, and, and like I'm like stuffing her son's Honda Civic with hand sanitizer and things. I'm like, I'm like, how did this happen? How did we get there? So so for me, it's not to um, make light of what we're doing, but to really point to how difficult this work is. But but I also, I feel like there's a certain ownership I can have over it as, as an Asian American woman whose ancestors did this sort of work as a rite of passage and, and, and is now in, a, in this terribly, horribly ancestral faded way I'm doing it again because the country has not prepared us. This gold mountain, this country that we came to to be free has created this other kind of situation for us. The term anti means something specific too, not just the sister of a parent. No. So yeah, I, auntie, I, I, I hear it more in like Hawaii diaspora communities and in Hawaii, if you've ever gone like elder women who are not necessarily related to you are called auntie, but also my friend's kids call me auntie, which I find so sweet. And as someone who didn't have 
children. I haven't had children. Um, <laughs> it, 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 it does, it is it's so endearing to be called that. And um, basically a neighbor had sort of given me the idea. My neighbor was helping me cut fabric early on before I created the group. And it was like, yeah, lots of aunties right now are being deployed to do this work. And I just really love this image that it's not soldiers with guns fighting this war, but <laughs> unassuming, like <laughs> very sweet ladies behind sewing machines are, are, are doing this war, this, this, sorry, doing this, well, we were fighting this war by, by trying to send our protection where it was most needed. And um, and I think that that was sort of the, the, the secret gift of our group is there's something when you ask, when you address everyone as aunties, who can help make these masks versus, hey, volunteers, who can help make this? Like it, it's, is this instant um, family sort of semi-cult situation. We joke that we're cult sometimes, but... <laughs> But, but there's this sort of sense that you belong, right? And that you are loved and revered. And it, it's a very different kind of way to address and and relate to the group when you refer to someone as an auntie. So that has been the sort of gift of our name. And you say the work the aunties are doing is traditional women's work. But you say the aunties embody some intriguing social possibilities. There was something very charming about like these aunties who, you know, when you walk down the street, you imagine like, and you see tons of different people. The auntie is not the person you imagine being the toughest, biggest, baddest ass <laughs> warrior. But that is sort of what this moment un revealed for us. And we had all sorts of aunties in a group, not just sewing aunties. We had haggle aunties. We had Rebecca Solnit is our writer historian shakedown auntie. So she would basically <laughs> shake down her following when we needed, you know, money so that we could fill a van full of stuff to the Navajo nation. Uh, uh, we, <laughs> we had spreadsheet aunties and elastic hub aunties and, and care aunties and driving aunties. And, um, you know, I wanted to ask about a couple of those. This is from a chart called the Taxonomy of Auntie Rolls. You also have the OG auntie. The OG auntie. Yeah, those are the aunties I pulled out from the beginning who'd been there from, from the very top of it and sort of witnessed it all unfold and, and would have to sort of uh, help onboard all these. We call them little duckling aunties because every time <laughs> we, we, during the you know few months in, we'd get the Washington Post would do a story, CNN would do a story and like, boom, here comes all these requests to join us. And, and then thus all the confusion, right? Like how do you, like, it's not like just like, yay, more people are here. Like someone needs to sort of show them how we work and how to work within this framework of this like group that we were just sort of building as we went. And, and part of your framework, you say, was that you emphasized that what you were doing is solidarity, not charity. Yeah. Yeah, I mean that's super important, and it was definitely not capitalism, but but very much we worked, um, we we cooperated and worked with uh, the needs of these communities um, and the organizers who have been doing the work before, during, and after this pandemic, and and rather than treat them as helpless, like recognize. They're not helpless. They're actually incredible communities that they, they've just system systemically bear the brunt of racism and you know environmental trauma and all these sort of things that that have put them in a position where there's no running water or there's 
so much poverty on this nation. And, and also like, and, and I'm thinking about communities like the Navajo nation, right. This very resilient community that, that has created all this mutual aid within their own nation, but only have 13 grocery stores across three States serving 300,000 people. That's not okay. Um, so, so trying to understand what their needs are, what we have access to and how can we quickly support them and get stuff to them. And, and you had a project specifically to aid the Navajo Nation. We had a few for a few different communities, but yes, um, we originally befriended their seamstress group. It was a group of Navajo and Hopi seamstresses, and they were, they were usually, they're very ingenuous. Is that the word? John, Ingenious. Right. Ingenious. <laughs> but they were using, because, you know, they're not near a fabric store, plus everything was shut down. They were using fitted sheets and using the elastic from the fitted sheets and sewing that into these medical gowns, right? These hospital gowns. And we were like looking at where we were in LA and going, we could, and we're looking at a map. This was like 40 days into this. And we were like, we could find someone to do, to, to do a round trip, a very long round trip in one day. Because remember, we were trying to minimize contact. This yeah. was just a year ago. And yet I have to remind you of these little details of how the yeah. pandemic went. Yeah. Um, and, and, and so that was the first of, of what became eight van loads over of, of, materials and stuff was was just trying to get them sewing materials for the seamstresses to sew up into masks and distribute locally and just pulling that stuff from what stores we could get opened in the in the garment district getting it over and then soon we began to talk to them more because some of those organizers were also part of like uh food boxes that were being distributed because people couldn't leave their homes and People are very far from food sources and, and there was needs for refrigeration and tents for people to quarantine in and uh, coolers and uh, hygiene supplies. And so we um, tried to support them by getting that over there. So on the one hand, we have the anti-sewing circle, mostly Asian American women. The opposite of the anti-sewing circle Rebecca Solnit uh, wrote in The Guardian, the opposite of its model of mutual aid and solidarity, she said, could be found in the white men who saw wearing masks as somehow compromising a masculinity that they defined as a lack of obligation to others, close quote. I know. I, it's just so, it's so weird that it got so polarizing. It didn't feel like that was, I actually had really thought that this moment of the pandemic was going to be our moment for humanity to come together, to move past their differences and recognize that we have to, you know, breathe. We, we all, we're so intertwined, but oops, we, that, that ship sailed way past us. And it just became, we were just now in like a deeper divide as a country, but yeah, as, as aunties too, we witnessed this and it's frustrating when you spend all this, extra time that you could be spending taking care of your families or your homes or earning income to make masks for others and then witness people burn masks or tell you your stuff is worthless or it's 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 so angering and but also just completely unnecessary and complete disinformation and so that sort of made us uh, our community stronger we, we i had always i had never really understood when people said sewing is political, now I'm like, yep, sewing is completely political. And, and when you look at like who is doing this labor, who benefits from it and how visible is our, you know, is our labor and all this and how respected and valued is it? That, these were all things that we had to keep thinking about how to communicate to the world. Like we know that you're used to 
and this is me in the voice of me screaming in a megaphone to the world. We know you're used to just pressing a few buttons and then something arrives uh, on your doorstep from Amazon. But in this moment, these masks don't exist. So, so you getting these masks from me, you really have to think hard about how many do you actually need? How many can you actually distribute? These can't be extra and fun little things. Just about out of time. Is there anything else we haven't covered here that you would like to cover? No, well, I would love to make a plug for if you couldn't make it off Broadway to Christina Wong's Sweatshop Overlord New York Theater Workshop is streaming the show until December 14th. And then it and then it just sort of disappears. Um, you can also purchase our book, uh, which I think is a great testament to this time, the Auntie Sewing Squad book. And it has contributions from dozens of aunties. Uh, a lot of them I'm slowly meeting as I do the show or as they come through town. I, I feel like the one gift of this time is that I found a family in the pandemic that I didn't have before. And I'm at least grateful to witness generosity in the way that I have through these aunties. And I, I hope to share that with others. Christina Wong. She went from being an unemployed performance artist to a sweatshop overlord in just 10 days. Her new book tells the story of how she learned to exploit unpaid manual labor and be lauded as a hero. I wrote the that. <laughs> I did write that sentence. <laughs> the book. The book, once again, is the Anti-Sewing Squad Guide to Mask-Making, Radical Care, and Racial Justice. Gia Tolentino calls the book a wonderful, motley, no-BS history of a singular and beautiful mutual aid project. Christina, thank you for all your work, and thanks for talking with us today. Thank you. Take care. You've been listening to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine. You can hear more interviews like this one at thenation.com, and you can subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. 